Yes, please. Operator, I'd like to talk to Mr. Al Cap, uh, C-A-P-P. The, uh, I think Mr. Colson's office, or the White House operator, may have the number. I don't Very know. fine. I believe we do have the oh, number, sir. Thank you. Hello? Uh, Mr. President, he is out of his house for about a half an hour. Would you like us to leave word and have him return the call? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I will be over in Birch by that time. All right, fine, sir. You can return it to me there. Very fine. Would you try Secretary Connolly for me, please? Certainly, sir. Yes, please. Colson, please. Thank you, Mr. President. Hello? Yes, uh, Mr. Colson should be to a phone in about a half an hour if you'd like fine. for him to return the call. Fine, okay. Hello? Yes, Mr. President, uh, Secretary Conley is out riding at the present time, and we've left word to have him return your call also. Fine, I'll be at Birch, okay? Fine, sir. Yes, please. Let's try Dr. Billy Graham, please. Thank you, Mr. President. That recording you just heard is our guest today talking with President Nixon. You are listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroides. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. Michael Ebbing was the head switchboard operator at Camp David and part of the Agency of Presidential Support Staff called the White House Communications Agency, or WACA. On this edition of the Nixon Now Podcast, Ebbing joins us in studio to discuss WACA's history, mission, and his own experience in the agency during the Nixon administration. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here, Jonathan, and thank you. Just to start off, could you give us a little bit of a backstory on how you came to join the White House and the White House Communications Agency? Oh, sure, I'd love to. Uh, actually, uh, it's very ironic because the uh, summer of 1969, when I graduated from college, uh, I took a job right away as a sports writer in Davenport, Iowa, and then a year later, in 1970, I'm working for the President of the United States. So uh, a, a guy from a small town in Illinois, you know, making it to the White House in 1970. I was 20, 23 years old. Uh, actually, the day I reported to Camp David, which was my main duty station, the presidential retreat, uh, the day I reported was the day before my 23rd birthday. So uh, how I got involved? Well, uh, graduating, uh, I, I graduated on time, four-year degree. I was a radio television uh, a major with a minor in news editorial, and pretty much my senior year, I took 12 hours of classes because that's what you needed to take to still be keep your status with the military. Uh, I was sports editor of the Daily Iowan, which was the newspaper on campus, and sports director of the campus radio station. So I was basically working uh, through my senior year, and then of course the uh, the draft. Uh, uh, my particular time. Uh, Nixon came, came forth with the lottery, which didn't begin until January of 1970. So I was part of that group, one of the last ones to get drafted. So I pretty much had a pretty good idea I was going to get drafted. Uh, I could not get a job at any of the radio television stations because they thought I was probably going to be leaving and, and, and going into the Army relatively soon. So I did take the job in Davenport, Iowa. Well, uh, I, I among, like uh, many of the other thousands and thousands of young, uh, young troops, uh, tried to get into the reserves, the National Guard, but the waiting lists, there were waiting lists of 20,000 in each. So uh, uh, sure enough, uh, I was one of the last uh, group to get drafted. I got my notice, I think, about September, October of 1969. Uh, I pr as soon as I got my draft notice, I proposed to my girlfriend. <laughs> she accepted. The next day I told her, by the way, honey, uh, I just got drafted. <laughs> <laughs> so she was still in college at Iowa at the time. So uh, at any rate, uh, they gave me an option. Uh, the Army gave me an option. Do you want to go into the Army on December 30th, 31st, January 1st, or January 2nd? Well, I decided I would want to spend... Uh, spend the time with my fiance for New Year's Eve, so I chose January 2nd. So I went to Chicago, got to stay at the downtown YMCA before my induction. That was quite an experience. So uh, 
went through all of the induction thing. Well, I, I, I need to backtrack just a bit because back then when you were drafted, you, you had probably a two-year commitment. In fact, you did have a two-year commitment. And almost, I would say, 90% of everybody was pretty much guaranteed you were going to be going to Vietnam in a, some type of a combat situation. So uh, I had a recruiter. with I had my college degree, so I had a recruiter that said, well, Mike, why don't you consider enlisting for an extra year? You'll add three years to your commitment. But with a college degree, you might have a choice of maybe what you, what you can do. So I'm thinking Vietnam, or I'm thinking at the extra year. So I, I thought, well, maybe I can land a position at the Army Times, which is located in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. With my journalism background, I can spend three years behind a typewriter, <laughs> very non-combative, <laughs> and just write. So I, I agreed for the three-year commitment. So they sent me down. Uh, actually, when I, I passed in flying colors, uh, at the induction station. So they, they put us all in, in lines to get on buses. Wouldn't tell us where we were going, but we were going somewhere for basic training. So about 13 hours later, <laughs> I ended up at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And this is, uh, this is like uh, early January. Ice, snow, horrible conditions at Fort Campbell. They run cycle break, so they hadn't begun training yet. So we had two assignments. You were either assigned to chip ice off of the shower floors because it had completely frozen over, or you could have one of the little Bunsen burners and go under the barracks uh, starting about midnight and just put that flame on the pipes so the pipes don't freeze up. So welcome to the Army, Mr. Ebbing, Private Ebbing. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe the... Uh, the, uh, the guy that was in charge before the drill sergeants came back after the cycle break was a guy that probably maybe had an eighth or ninth grade education, but he, he, was, he outranked all of the new recruits coming in. And he actually, if he found out you were a college graduate, you were really in trouble. <laughs> so we went, and of course we got all of our hair cut off. We all had the long hair of the 60s back then, so we got all of our hair cut off. So at any rate, uh, getting to how the White House situation came about, about the third or fourth week of basic training, we, uh, we received a notice from our, our drill sergeant, drill commander, that uh, there, was, there were people coming in to do some interviews. They wouldn't tell us a lot about it at all. But they said uh, it's going to be in a big assembly room. It's going to be a couple of hours, uh, afternoon, like 2 o'clock. So, of course, uh, this was a chance to get out of that, that afternoon of training. Nobody really knew what was going on. So I would guess there were probably about 500 of us in this big assembly room. Two or three guys up on stage with white shirts and ties. So, again, they wouldn't tell us a whole lot, but they did say it's, uh, uh, it's involved in a top-secret uh, mission. They didn't tell us anything about the White House, but they did say... If you've been involved uh, with drugs, marijuana, anything like that in your future or in your past, which we're talking about the 60s, Jonathan, so <laughs> you know, there's very few that could say, right. well, I, I wasn't involved in anything like that. So anyway, they said you will be required to have a full FBI investigation. You won't be a, a, a polygraph test. Uh, you will be getting the top secret clearance. So if if you have had anything in your past, don't show up for the next meeting. So a couple of days later, they had the next meeting. Uh, that attendance, Jonathan, went from 500 to about 75. <laughs> that many had wow. eliminated themselves. So those 75 that were left, they, they started to tell us a little more about what this involved. And uh, uh, as it turned out, out of all of those people, there were three people that were selected. And from what I've talked with other, other people that are, have gone through White House communications, that's pretty much the standard. It's about a 3%. And, and all, all the stories are all, the, it's amazing. All the stories are all the same. Big assembly room, met, they do their pitch about the drugs. All of a sudden, there's nobody hardly showing up the next time. So what happens? Uh, 
there's, there's a lot of different levels of White House communications. The need that they needed at that particular time were for switchboard operators. So the three people that recruited were all going to go to switchboard school, which was at Fort Gordon, Georgia. So you take your standard training of switchboard school, Fort Gordon, Georgia. So after basic training, that's where I went, Fort Gordon, Georgia. And they said, once you complete your switchboard training, you're going to get orders. Don't be alarmed, because within an hour, those orders should get stamped revoked, and you'll, it'll be stamped that you're on White House hold. So they're, they're pending your investigation, whatever they need to do, your background check before your, your clearance is approved. So sure enough, I got my orders. Uh, I was going to be a switchboard operator at Long Bin Airport in Vietnam, which uh, I was shaking when I got the orders. And uh, sure enough, a couple hours later, those orders were revoked and stamped right on at White House hold. So now I'm in the predicament of being on a hold status. And it's amazing talking with some of the other uh, folks that were in White House communications. These clearances could take anywhere from, I'd say the average time was three to four months. They go back into your hometown. They start talking to a family of yours, friends, relatives. They do a really intensive check of your background in order to get a top secret clearance. So some have taken as long as a year. Well, I, I'm trying to think of what I may have done in my past because uh, the months kept going along at Fort Gordon, Georgia. I ended up having a pretty good job. I was a, the secretary for a battalion commander, lieutenant. So uh, I moved out of the barracks and I moved into his, his office. I don't think he knew I was living in his office, but he had a wonderful couch in his office. He had a TV <laughs> set, nice stereo. My first job was to make coffee in the morning for him. So I just made my bunk once, and I would change. I didn't have to stand any formations because I was on White House hold. So my main job was to make sure all the enlisted career guys that were working at, at Fort Gordon had their physical training tests. So I had a card file, which I would run through. And I did have some responsibilities on Saturday morning, but I never had to stand formation. Uh, in the meantime, uh, my soon-to-be wife, we were planning our wedding as soon as I got my orders. So it went on, it went on, it went on. We got to May of 1970. I'm still at Fort Gordon, and that's when the Kent State shootings took place in, in May of 1970. And that's when the campus un unrest was going all over across the country. My wife was a, a junior at the University of Iowa. Her, her classes were canceled. Nobody took finals. They sent all the students home, which was pretty much what was going on back in 1970, right after Kent State. Well, sure enough, finally, uh, around the first, first week in August, I think, uh, I got my, my clearance approved, my top secret clearance. Told my wife, guess what, honey? We're getting married. You've got two weeks to plan our wedding. <laughs> so I flew back to Davenport, Iowa. And uh, they told me to report for White House. They, they thought, well, we're, we're, we're like probably 100% sure. I checked in at Georgetown in the D.C. area. That's where we had our headquarters for White House communications back in 1970. So I checked in and talked to the, the, the main, main person in charge was not there at the time. But they said, we're, we're like 95% sure we're going to use you at uh, White House Signal. Now, White House Signal is the switchboard that's located in the basement of the White House. And uh, so they said, go ahead. And, uh, and the two, two other people that I had known from Fort Gordon, they had already got their clearance, and they were already working at the White House. So that's actually where I was staying. They had an apartment in Arlington, Virginia, across the river, which were a, a majority of the Waka people all lived there with their wives and families. And then they had like a carpool they would take to the White House every morning rather than having everybody drive across the bridge and go to the White House. So uh, at any rate, I, uh, I told, uh, they said, well, go ahead and, and find your apartment. So I went to this place where everybody, all the Waka guys were staying. So I, I think I signed a lease for my, my one month rent was like $252 a month, which sounds, how can that be so cheap? Well, the Army was giving me $125 a month for housing allowance back in the day. So I was going to be paying almost double that 
with my rent in Arlington. So they said, well, before you fly back, make sure you check in and just, just to make sure. We'll confirm that you're going to be at, at, uh, at the White House. So I called back in. Well, uh, talked to the chief, and uh, we're actually going to use you at Camp David. And I said, oh, my gosh, I just signed my lease, you know. I got $242 out. And they said, well, can you move your flight back a day? Because we, we have a real estate lady up in the Camp David area, and she absolutely loves the, the Waka guys. And she, like, takes them as their grandsons. And she can find you a place to live in the Camp David area it, 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 within a couple of hours. So I called my wife, and I said, well, guess what? We're, we're, I'm at Camp David. Now, I'm not at, and, and, and I called the, the uh, apartment community, was able to get out of my lease, so they, they, they knew I was a White House guy, so they, they do kind of bend the rules a little bit. So I went up, talked to lovely Mrs. Warren Feltz. She was the uh, 80-year-old realtor who just absolutely loved the Waka guys, so she found me a place upstairs of a house which was fully set up, you know, it had a kitchen, it had, it, you know, uh, $80 a month, Jonathan, $80 a month, so I'm going to be making money on the Army. So at first I was a, I was a little disappointed that I wasn't uh, where all the action was at the White House, that I was at Camp David, but as I reflected back after serving two years plus at Camp David, I wouldn't have traded that time for anything else in the world. So at any rate, I went back to, uh, to Davenport, uh, we got the wedding planned, and a very small wedding. Most people, I think most people thought my wife was pregnant because, you know, we sent the announcements out in two weeks. And we actually did have, we got married on August 14th. And uh, we did have our daughter on August 15th, but it was four years later. <laughs> wow. Could you tell us a little bit about the the history of WACA, the White House Communications Agency, uh, what, when and why was it created, and what is its scope in the White House and the government at large? Sure, sure. Actually, uh, under uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, under his administration in 1942, uh, he established White House Communications Agency, communication support for the president when he traveled, when he left the White House, needed some type of communication support, basically a traveling White House. So... Ironically enough, that same year is the year that FDR opened uh, the retreat in the Catoctin Mountain Range uh, in the Maryland Mountains, which at that time was known as Camp Shangri-La, later to be known as Camp David. So Camp David came on the scene in 1942, the same time that Waka. Now, Waka's mission uh, is basically all types of communications. So we had uh, typically on a, on a trip, a presidential trip, say an airport rally to Chicago or something like that, our advanced team of Waka people would, would leave maybe, uh, maybe five or six days before the president was going to arrive. And we would be involved in setting up the switchboard, usually at a hotel, could be at an airport, depending on where it made the most sense. And part of that team also were electronics technicians with White House Communications. They were the ones that set up the, our, our little small mini switchboard at the hotel. Uh, we had audiovisual people. They were the people that did the microphones. The president was going to do the speech. Waka is even, and still today, is part of hanging that presidential seal on the podium. That is still a Waka responsibility. That's part of the audiovisual group. There's a comm center group back when I was there that handled like the teletype messages. And you got to remember, when I served in the Nixon administration, there were no cell phones. There were no computers. So it was basically pagers, pagers, beepers. And, and when I first started, it was a rotary dial telephones. And the switchboards were pretty, if, uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners will relate to the, uh, the Ernestine and the Laugh-In and, uh, and her, the switchboard operator. And actually that switchboard that Ernestine operated, Lily Tomlin on Laugh-In, is not too much different from those switchboards that we were setting up at oh. the hotels. So it was, it was very, for the time, it was, it was the technology, best technology we had. But uh, it was very limited, very challenging. So there were all types of, of Waka support people. 
And typically, like, like the trip to China, the trip to Russia, uh, we had probably 45 to 50 members of the WACA team that were in, in China and in Russia for probably three and a half weeks before the president arrived. And it was part of the White House staff, people, all the Secret Service advanced. As soon as this whole party for advanced trips arrived at the trip location, first thing, most important thing, set up the switchboard. Now there were drops to all the key people at their hotel rooms, directly from their hotel rooms to the little mini, we called it a mini switchboard, probably had 40 stations in it. And we had two long, long haul lines back to Washington, D.C. They called them trunk lines. So in other words, if somebody is at, uh, somebody picks up in their hotel room, they pick up the direct drop that goes directly to our, and we have their name on a little thing, plug in our switchboard plug, and if they want to call the White House, we just use the other plug, push the button down, and bam, within minutes, they're connected to the White House. Can you give an example of how that might work? Uh, Henry Kissinger is on a trip somewhere, or uh, the president is on a trip somewhere. They're both on a trip somewhere, and they need to they need to communicate between staff. How would how would all that how would all that work through the White House Communications Agency? You're talking on a trip now. On, on a, a trip, trip, trip location. Okay. Uh, yeah, let me, let me kind of set that up because uh, when we would arrive in town, we'd work with the local, usually it was a bell, all the telephone people, and we would coordinate. And it, it was amazing. Within, within the same day we arrived, our switchboard was working. Our switchboard would be operating 24 hours a day. So normally we would have three switchboard operators. We'd have the, the day side guy, the afternoon guy, and then the midnight guy because you never know when there might be some type of an emergency that would take place. So uh, in the early early on stages, it's, it's basically all staff, White House staff, Secret Service, all the planning, the trip, the advance man, the Ron Walker, uh, uh, who, would, who did most of the advance planning for those types of trips, the lead Secret Service agent. Uh, actually, Diane Sawyer was a member of the White House press office at the time. She worked with Ron Ziegler in the press office. So, uh, Pretty busy times before the president arrived. We would have printed cards that would, would we would have a, a dial-in line too. And so we would pass those out to the key staff members. So if they're at a restaurant or something and they needed to talk to the, to the White House switchboard, we would have a printed card that would say, for instance, say we're in Chicago. It would say Chicago Signal and it would have that direct line. So they could call in from anywhere, get right in to our little White House switchboard. And then uh, when the president arrived, when Air Force One would arrive at that location, we no longer were Chicago Signal. We would answer the telephone Chicago Signal, Chicago Signal, all the way up until Air Force One arrived. The minute, the, And we would have radio communications with Air Force One on our switchboard. So we knew exactly Secret Service would let us know when, the, when Air Force One touched, touched down. And so we had, uh, but the minute Air Force One landed in whatever city in the world, we no longer were Chicago Signal. We were no longer Paris Signal. The telephone would then would then be answered, Chicago White House, Paris White House. So wherever the president was, the switchboard now took on the that identity as the White House, the traveling White House. So typically, I, I would say all of the trips, and I probably did 25 or 30 presidential trips, worldwide from, from Paris to Ottawa, Canada, Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, I was a part of the China trip, but did not go to China. But uh, several trips to uh, Key Biscayne, the Florida White House, several trips to the Western White House in San Clemente, and then my main station in Camp David. So uh, depending upon where the president was, you, you asked me typically about how a call might be handled. All the trips that I was on worldwide I never, not once, did the president ever pick up the phone and, and ask to call somebody. Now, many of these trips were maybe a two-hour airport rally. They weren't involved in an overnight. And, and a lot of the times, I was working a midnight to eight shift, so the president was in bed anyway. So I'm not saying he didn't use the lines. I, during the day, I'm sure he made tons of calls, but I never handled one call at a trip site, handled many at San Clemente and Key Biscayne, but, but none at, uh, at a trip site. But typically what would happen, uh, and, and I probably should mention because it's interesting, the, the presidential protocol on phone calls, and it was, uh, it was spelled out as soon as Air Force One arrived. 
uh, I can guarantee you, and, I, and I've talked to, uh, to Larry Higby, who's a foundation member here and former staffer, worked under Bob Haldeman, uh, and Haldeman was the chief, chief assistant, chief aide to President Nixon. But uh, I can guarantee you the first phone call you would get as soon as Air Force touched down and the presidential party arrived at the hotel would be Larry Higby. And Larry Higby would emphasize the protocol for all incoming presidential phone calls and how they should be handled. And also the protocol for all phone calls incoming for Bob Haldeman and how they should be handled. So quite simply enough, uh, and, uh, and, and a switchboard operator, you better remember this when Larry Higby would tell you this, but any incoming call for the, from, for the president, unless it was from Bob Haldeman, or it was from the first family, if Pat Nixon or, or the two daughters were, happened to be on, on the trip, they went right through. But every, every caller for President Nixon before that call was connected to President Nixon had to go through Bob Haldeman first to be cleared. Now there was also protocol with Bob Haldeman's calls. All of Bob Haldeman's calls had to go through Larry Higby. So that was the chain of command. Uh, the other thing that was would, what Larry Higby would emphasize at a trip location, that if, if there's an incoming call for Haldeman, it would go through Higby, but that caller, whoever it might be, whether it's Chuck Colson, Dr. Kissinger, John Ehrlichman, that person stays on the line, does not hang up. He stays on the line until Bob Haldeman is ready to take the call. So you can imagine, Jonathan, that we had some some rather tenuous situations. I remember one trip, I believe it was Chuck Colson. He picked up the, he picked up the phone that they just arrived. The presidential party had just arrived at the hotel. And you know when they arrive because the switchboard lights up. Nixon never makes a call, but all the staff are making calls right and left, right and left. So I think I had a call from Chuck Colson. He said, would you, would you get me Mr. Haldeman, please? Thank you, Mr. Colson. And, and I made sure his light was still on because the staff knew also Haldeman's, you could call them idiosyncrasies, but you wait on the line to talk to Bob Haldeman. You don't hang up and then, so anyway, I'm, I'm constantly looking to make sure that that light is still on, that uh, Colson is still on the line. So the protocol, as I mentioned earlier, I, I, need, okay, I can't just call Haldeman. I've got to call Higby first and tell Higby who's calling Haldeman. So I got Mr. Higby, I, I, have, um, I have Mr. Colson calling for Mr. Holloman. Fine, uh, just a second, I'll, I'll, get Mr., I'll get Mr. Holloman. So Bob Holloman comes on the line. I said, yes, Mr. Holloman, I have Mr. Mr. Colson for you now. Okay, fine. So I see the light go out on Colson's thing. So I, I see a little flash, and Holloman said, I, said to me on the switchboard, I said, I thought you said you had Colson. I said, well, sir, he was just there. I said, I don't know what happened. And I said, I'll try to reach him. And, he, and, and Haldeman hung up the phone. He said, well, just call me back when you get him. It wasn't very pleasant. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've almost got to believe, and it, and it might not be true, but I've got to almost believe that uh, as soon as they arrived, they, they might have been kind of playing a little bit of games with Haldeman and his position with Nixon and all of the calls going through Haldeman. But at any rate, uh, uh, to this day, I still think that Chuck Colson made that call, then he went to the next, next hotel room. Just, just kinda, kind of an aggravation type of thing. Well, we finally located Haldeman, or, or Colson, he was in another hotel room. So we got back to, to Haldeman. And no sooner did that call get completed than Larry Higby calls me. Because I, I'm sure that when they got done with the call, Haldeman went to Higby and said, Larry, I thought you told the switchboard the protocol on the phone calls. Didn't you make that clear? And Larry said, well, let me call the switchboard. I, I did make it very clear. So I was the head switchboard guy. So Larry called me back and said, what didn't you understand about those people needed to hold on the Haldeman calls? And I said, sir, I said, he, he was right there. And he was, when I, when I connected, his light was still on. I don't know, he, I don't know if he stepped, I don't know what happened. But I said, yes, sir, I do know the protocol. And I just, I just talked with Larry last, we had our Walker reunion here at the Nixon Library. 
And uh, Larry and I, we went over that story and both had a pretty good laugh about that at the time, <laughs> about the about what went on and the and the the typical type of thing. Now, now a call, a call, uh, a typically a, a call from a trip site. Uh, say, uh, say, if President Nixon would want to talk to somebody, say, say a John Mitchell who's back at the White House, what would traditionally happen is we would call back to the White House admin board, which is located across the street from the White House in the old executive office building. It's also in the downstairs, and that's where the White House admin operators are located. Uh, these are gals that basically handle all of the presidential calls. The basement of the White House, where the signal, signal board was located at the time, we basically handled pretty much the military calls. We weren't involved with presidential calls. The presidential calls were all going through the White House admin board. So they pretty much had a way to contact almost anybody on the planet. And, and through the paging, the beeper system, the old pagers that they would carry, plus the, they've had phone numbers, a vast amount of phone calls, phone numbers. So typically that call would go through the White House admin board. If I was at, if I was at Camp David and the president wanted to talk to somebody, uh, I would, unless I had a direct number, I would go to the ladies at the White House admin board. And then once they would get that party on the line, and it was amazing, Jonathan, how quickly they could locate people. And, and that was a thing that we as White House Communications also, and we were praised by the staff years and years after we served, that it was amazing we were able to reach people and contact people, you know, basically. And, and you got to remember we're talking about 45, 50 years ago when it was very archaic type of a communication system. But uh, I don't know if that answers your question about how a, a call might. No, it answers it, it answers it perfectly. I was only to ask you too. Could you, could you list some of the? Um, tell us a little bit about some of the um, notable trips that you went on, presidential trips that you went on, especially the foreign trips. You had you had mentioned before this interview going on the uh, going to the De Gaulle funeral. Uh, right, could you tell us right. a little bit about uh, some of your some of your travels with the president? Yeah, yeah. My uh, my first trip. And, and like I say, uh, when I, when I uh, got involved with WACA, uh, it, was, uh, it was the midterm elections in 1970. President Nixon was doing an, uh, just an abhorrent amount of campaigning. He was just going right and left, uh, very, uh, very critical elections in the midterm in 1970, which a lot of, a lot of uh, those Republicans to get elected were probably going to be keys to his strategy and his, his winning the re-election in, in uh, 1972. So uh, I was sent, uh, I don't think I mentioned that, that right after I arrived at Camp David, they needed to train switchboard operators and get them trip ready right away because they knew Nixon was going to do all of this campaigning. So they were really thin on the amount of staff, so they needed to get these people trained. So I was sent down to the White House uh, basement of the White House for two weeks of training. This was shortly out. This is a week after I arrived at Camp David. I was sent down for my training, and it was a, a very, very sophisticated uh, training session. You pretty much had to memorize all the key staff members' names, what their titles were. So, uh, and you had a pretty, pretty tough test you had to take and pass. Once you passed that test, then you were what they said trip ready. So I, I completed my two weeks of training, got back home, and keep in mind, we'd only been married a, a month, so I'm already gone, you know, two weeks down in Washington for my training. Uh, but at any rate, uh, sure enough, about a week later, I was assigned on my first trip. First trip was to Savannah, Georgia, a rally in Savannah, Georgia. So uh, I was new, so I was on the midnight shift, so I was kind of a, I was there, but not really part of the and I wasn't. I was in bed when Air Force One uh, landed in Savannah. Got home, and uh, <clears throat> shortly thereafter, uh, uh, I was. Uh, they said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna pack your bags." And you always had to have your bags packed because you could in a minute's notice. So typically, what would happen at Camp David, if they needed a couple of switchboard operators, they'd have a driver that would take us down to our headquarters at uh, Georgetown. And then there'd be a couple of uh, station wagons that would take us out to Andrews Air Force Base, and then we'd go to whatever trip site that was. Uh, my second set of trips, uh, and I say trips because they, they would tell you, they said, be prepared that you're probably going to go, you're going to jump somewhere else, that you're not going to come home after your first trip. 
So my second trip was one of those jump type of trips. They said, you know, pack enough clothes because you're going to be gone for a while. So uh, I was down to St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, Nixon was campaigning for Lawton Childs, who I think was the uh, uh, running for governor of Florida at the time. So he was going to do an airport rally in, in St. Petersburg, Florida. So again, I was uh, pretty raw. I was working a midnight shift. So uh, just got back to my room at the hotel. We had the switchboard set up right at the hotel. They'd take, taken all the furniture out and set up our little mini switchboard at the hotel. So Air Force One was landing, I think, about 9.30, 10 o'clock uh, to Tampa Airport. And uh, so, well, I take that back. I think he probably landed at, uh, at Homestead Air Force Base down in Florida and then more than likely took, uh, probably took the helicopter to, to that airport rally. But at any rate, Air Force One was touching out about 9.30, 10 o'clock. Well, I get a call at my hotel room about, about 9 o'clock, and they said, uh, Ebbing, we need you at the switchboard room immediately. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, I just got off midnight to 8, you know. Uh, so I went to the switchboard room. Well, as it turned out, uh, the other switchboard operator, that was his fir very first trip. And then the lead switchboard operator, that was his very first trip being in charge. Well, he uh, basically, when Air Force One was touching down, he uh, basically lost lost control of his capacities and was having a nervous breakdown. And he had to be restrained by the Secret Service and escorted out of the room. This is probably half an hour before Air Force One was landing. So here's myself and the other guy. All of a sudden, we're thrust into the the whole activity of the actual landing. Uh, fortunately, everything went smoothly, but uh, and he was sent back uh, from uh, Homestead back to uh, Andrews Air Force Base, and he went in for some testing. And I, I don't think I ever knew whatever happened to him. But at any rate, that left only two switchboard operators. And w when the rally was done in St. Petersburg, they said, well, you're going to be jumping from there to Burlington, Vermont. Well, we're talking about late September, early October. Weather is nice in Florida, but not so nice in Vermont. So we get into Vermont. We're at a very cold airport where they set the uh, switchboard up. And there's only two operators. So we are working 12-hour shifts now. Of course, now we both got colds with that climate change from Florida to Vermont. Uh, they said they're working on getting another operator to give us some type of relief, but we had to run that switchboard for 12 hours, 12-hour shifts. You know, you work 8 to 8, and then the other guy comes at 8 at night and works till 8 the next morning. So the, the rally went on, uh, no problems, and then they said, uh, we're still working on getting you another operator, but they said, now we're going to jump you to Phoenix, Arizona. So directly from Vermont, we went to Arizona. Same situation, set up, the ho set up the switchboard at the hotel. Still the two operators, we're both sick. We're working 12-hour shifts. The second day, they did send a second operator. So we did have three operators. But that trip, I think, that series of trips were like, uh, like 15 days we were on the road. And uh, it was challenging. No sooner did I get back, and I'm, I'm back working at Camp David, working the midnight shift at Camp David, get off at 8 o'clock, drive down from Camp David, top of the mountain, to my house, which was about 10 miles off of Camp David. And I just got to bed about 9.30. I get a call, and I said, uh, the president is going to, uh, to Paris for de Gaulle's funeral. Would you like to go? They need a couple of switchboard operators. And I was still half asleep, but I thought, Paris sounds interesting. I've never been there. <laughs> I said, yeah. They said, well, pack your bags. We'll pick you up in an hour, and we'll uh, take you down to Washington, D.C. So they took me down, myself and another operator from Camp David. We went down to D.C. At that point, we had to have our shots and had to go pick up our passport, had to pick up our trip passes. We got out to Andrews Air Force Base at, uh, I want to say it was 6 o'clock in the evening, Washington, D.C. time and got on this big C-141 cargo plane, which is how we basically traveled. We didn't travel on Air Force One. <laughs> we traveled on the cargo plane. So uh, on that plane was the presidential helicopter. That was, that was in the front part of it. The, they, they just lifted down the back of the cargo plane and then just started whatever they needed for that trip. 
So the helicopter was there, then the presidential limousine was rolled up right behind that, and then the backup limousine was rolled in behind that. Now our seating was uh, the little drop-down jump seats, which were on the sides of each corner of the aircraft. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the C-141, but I'm sure uh, any of your listeners that were in the Air Force are very familiar with that, that aircraft. It's not set up for passenger travel. <laughs> it's set up for cargo. So it's either extremely hot, extremely cold. Uh, there's no windows. It's very noisy. Uh, we would get our, our lunch, no, obviously no stewardesses. We would get our lunch, which was a plastic bag with usually an apple and a peanut butter sandwich. That was our lunch. So anyway, we left Andrews at about 6 o'clock, and it was about a six-hour flight to Paris. So we, we arrived in Paris, which would have been about midnight D.C. time, but with the time change, it was 6 o'clock the next morning. And keep in mind, on most international trips, if we knew the president was leaving, our team would probably be, especially in an international country, we would be there at least six, seven days lead time to get everything set up. Well, with de Gaulle's funeral, there was our lead time was about three and a half or four four days, so it was really shrink. So as soon as we touched down at, uh, uh, I think it was Orly Airport, later to be known as de Gaulle Airport, we touched down there. There was no, it was set up right away. No, no time to sleep, no time to check into the hotel. So you can imagine how my body was feeling. Now I had just got off the midnight shift at Camp David, hadn't slept all night. Then I went through this whole thing, then flew on this thing. So, so I'm basically in Paris and, and I'm kind of a, a walking zombie. But we got the switchboard set up and a lot of challenges. Uh, all the heads of state from all the nations were in Paris. Uh, there were, we did, we did, again, we did have the helicopter there. We did have the limousines there. Uh, and I, I was, again, I was working the midnight shift, but uh, the whole city of Paris uh, for that whole uh, two or three days before the funeral was pretty much just all shut down. There was just nothing going on. It was just, uh, I, they, they did have the Eiffel Tower open, so I did, before I went to my midnight shift, I did get to go see the Eiffel Tower. And I brought my wife a little plastic statue of the Eiffel Tower. I said, look what I got you, honey. <laughs> so uh, at any rate, that, that trip, uh, that trip uh, went reasonably well. Uh, got back, and uh, very shortly after that, we found out that uh, President Nixon was going to open, uh, was going to be a, in attendance for the grand opening of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Uh, so there, that's a pretty good trip. Uh, so they want to know if I'm interested in going to Orlando, and I said, I'm, I'm all in. So uh, I still had my, my newspaper press credentials. I had my little card that says I was an employee of the, the newspaper in Davenport. So we get into Orlando and go to the, uh, and uh, I don't know if, if you've been to, to Disney World in Florida today, but back then when it grand opened, it's, it wasn't anything near what it, what it is today. They basically had two hotels, Polynesian Village and the Contemporary Resort. And we set up our switchboard at the Polynesian Village. So in the meantime, they, Disney, Walt was, had passed away, but Roy Disney was basically running the whole launch of Walt Disney World, the Disneyland of the East, you know, compared to the, the Disneyland in Anaheim. So he wanted worldwide press. And uh, uh, at the uh, Contemporary Resort, which uh, was just a, a, a kind of a, a trolley ride away from where we were staying, they were having these lavish press parties each night. So we got the switchboard set up, and uh, we weren't working until later that night. So I told uh, my roommate at the time, I said, "Let's just go over. You know, I'll show my I'll show my press pass, and we'll see if we can get into this nice lavish party." You know. And uh, I said, don't, I told him, I said, don't you say anything. You just, you know, I'll walk the walk and I'll talk the talk. Don't say anything. So we walked up to the main, main thing. And at that point, like I say, Disney wanted to get all the media attention they could. And so I showed him my press pass and I said, I, I wasn't able to, you know, get my credentials ahead of time. They welcomed me and gave me a sticker and gave my roommate a sticker. So we, we went two nights to those, those lavish Walt Disney World parties. Now, also, what they did, they gave, us, they gave us passes to the park. And the only people, the public grand opening was what Nixon was going to come for, which was about four or five days later. 
So the only people that had passes to the park were the White House communications people and all the media that were there, which, like I say, tons of worldwide media, and then the park employees. So on our off time, we would go over to the park and we would go, no, no waiting hardly at all in lines. And our favorite rides, we'd go two or three times, you know. So at any rate, uh, something was happening back in D.C. I don't know exactly what it was, but our trip officer said that the president has canceled his plans to come down to Walt Disney World. They were going to send Bob Haldeman in his place. Well, we didn't need the full switchboard capacities for Haldeman. So our trip officer said, I'll tell you what, tear down all of our equipment. We'll get it all boxed up, and I'll call the people back in D.C. and tell them that we— uh, we're having difficulty getting a plane back from Homestead Air Force Base back to Andrews in D.C., and we'll just stay an extra night here at, uh, at, at Orlando. So we did, and we spent that whole extra day just going back to the park. But that was a trip that Nixon didn't go to. Uh, some of the other uh, memorable uh, trips that I was on, uh, gosh, there were a lot of them. I, I remember one uh, to New York City. Uh, we were at a, a hotel downtown, and uh, part, part of the staff advance, uh, this is when I first uh, had an opportunity to talk with Diane Sawyer. Uh, probably two or three days into the trip, uh, uh, she called the switchboard at about probably, I want to say 12.30, 12.45 a.m., and she uh, was just checking to see if there was any messages she was part of the, the staff, the White House staff advance. Ziegler would come on the press on Air Force One with, with Nixon, but the White House press advance, she was part of that, that uh, staffing that went earlier. So for, for whatever reason, Miss Sawyer was in a very talkative mood that evening. And normally we're instructed, we don't, we don't talk, we, know, we do answer the request from the White House staff and we don't make any, obviously no small talk. But Diane wanted to talk, so we got to talking, and she found out I was a former newspaper reporter. And she said, well, I, well, I was also a former newspaper reporter before I went into the White House. So we talked about which newspapers we were working for, and that conversation went on for like 10 or 15 minutes. And Diane said before she closed off, she said, well, Mike, are you going to be working the, the switchboard the same time tomorrow night? And I said, well, there's nobody else on the midnight shift, so yeah, I'll be here. She said, well, I'll call you tomorrow night. So she called me the next night, and we, we chatted a little more. And, of course, after the White House, Diane Sawyer, as you know, went on to the bigger and better things with ABC and a, just an illustrious career as a, as a news, news commentator. Could you tell us a little bit about your—you uh, said earlier that you needed a security clearance for this position. Why the—could you tell us a little bit about the— the reason why you need a security clearance for this for this position in the White House? Yeah, I think it uh, like like uh, every position in White House communications was was involved with uh, in some way indirectly with the president president of the United States. A lot of top classified information involved, uh, and, and I think they they wanted. Uh, they wanted to maintain a, a very high caliber type person that worked for White House Communications, and uh, you were uh, you were susceptible to to top secret type documents uh, if it was like a teletype thing where uh, those that were working in the communications center that would be delivering those types of documents to uh, somebody's hotel room, Kissinger's hotel room, Haldeman's hotel room. Uh, uh, it was just part of the, and I think even today, it's still, that's the prerequisite. You, you do need a top secret clearance to work uh, for White House communications. Did you have any interactions? You had mentioned some of the interactions you've had with some of the staff, uh, Haldeman, Diane Sawyer. Did you have any interactions with the president himself? Uh, yeah, I had, uh, I, I never personally met the president now, a lot of the people uh, that were in WACA that were in different capacities, like audiovisual, like uh, setting up press conferences from the Oval Office, part of the AV things, they were actually face-to-face -face talking with the president. I would guess in my two-plus two years at Camp David, I probably was involved with 100, 125 presidential phone calls. Uh, 
Now, I, I mentioned earlier that I was a little bit uh, uh, taken back that I was assigned at Camp David and out where all the action was at, at White House, but then I, I realized that those guys that worked at White House Signal at the basement of the White House, they really never handled a presidential phone call unless they were at Western White House or were at Key Biscayne or happened to be on a trip site where the president would make a phone call. And so I, I would say in the three years, I probably was fortunate enough to handle more face-to-face pres -face presidential phone calls than uh, those folks that did work down at Signal. So, uh, yeah, I, I, as I say, uh, Nixon was never a problem uh, on the phone. He was, he was very, uh, very, if I want to say gentle on the phone. Uh, he was just the direct opposite of his senior staff members. Uh, Mr. Haldeman, Mr. Colson, Dr. Kissinger was a sweetheart. I, I remember my first phone call I got from Dr. Kissinger at Camp David. Uh, the, the presidential party had just arrived at Camp David. Dr. Kissinger picked up the phone in his cabin at Camp David. And, you know, his heavy accent, uh, I said, yes, sir. Uh, and he said something of which the only thing I could uh, really make out is he said, could you get me? And then I, I couldn't understand what he said. And then I said, I think, he, I think he said something about shaving cream. So I said, uh, I'm sorry, sir, I beg your pardon? So he repeated it. And basically I got the same thing. I didn't really understand. I, I was too embarrassed to ask him again, would you uh, go slower and say that again, Dr. Kissinger? I just said, thank you, sir. So I pulled my, my switchboard plug out of Dr. Kissinger's extension, and I'm thinking, okay, now what did he say? Well, his, his girlfriend at the time, Nancy, who a couple of years later became his wife, she was at Camp David in another cabin. So I called her cabin, and I said, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to bother you, but uh, Dr. Kissinger just asked for something, and I, I just couldn't understand what he said. And I said, I think he said something about shaving cream. And so Nancy told me, she said, well, I do know that Dr. Kissinger prefers the brushless shaving cream. I, I have a notion in his cabin, in his bathroom in his cabin, they had the, the shaving brush, you know, with the cream and where you brush the shaving cream on. And Dr. Kissinger apparently wanted the, uh, just the, the push button shaving cream. But Nancy told me, she said, I think that's what, I'm pretty sure. I said, well, now that you, now that you said that, I, I kind of think that's what he said. So I called one of the Navy stewards at Camp David and I said, could you get uh, some brushless shaving cream to Dr. Kissinger's cabin? And I said, please tell me, call the switchboard when it's been delivered. So 10 minutes later, I get a call from the Navy, one of the Navy stewards, and they said that we've just delivered the shaving cream to Dr. Kissinger's cabin. So I've got my fingers crossed that I don't get a call in the next half an hour from Dr. Kissinger. <laughs> So actually, I told that story to Winston Lord, who was here at the library uh, this, this past uh, what past month uh, at a presentation for his book on Kissinger on Kissinger, and he got a good good chuckle about that that story about Dr. Kissinger. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the other uh, calls with uh, celebrities, uh, you know, high level government officials, anybody else? Who uh, who you who you've dealt with uh, over over the years at uh, Waka? Yeah, yeah, Jonathan. One of one of the things that uh, we actually we took pride uh, working at the switchboard was again, like I said earlier, just being able to to get a person that the president has requested and get him get that person uh, as fast as possible. You know, I remember a call at uh, at Camp David. Uh, when the president was there, and, and uh, I will mention in, in 1971, President Nixon used Camp David, we figured it out, he used Camp David 26 weekends out of the year. And I was, uh, myself and my boss, we traded off on which weekends that we worked. So I basically was working, you know, what was it, 13 of those weekends at Camp David when the president was there. He would typically come to Camp David a lot uh, during the football season. He loved the game of football. So uh, I remember one call. Uh, the president was in his, uh, his living room at Aspen, the lodge at Camp David, and uh, Ohio State and Michigan were playing each other. 
the winner of that game was going to get to go to the Rose Bowl. And if you remember back in 1971 or 72, there weren't 150 bowl games to go to. The Big Ten had one bowl game to go to, and that was the Rose Bowl. So the winner of the Ohio State-Michigan game was going to go to the Rose Bowl. So we had a little small television in our, our switchboard room, and we knew President Nixon was watching the football game in, in his headquarters, in or his, his uh, living room at Aspen. So again, with the idea of being able to, to reach people, uh, I was working the switchboard, and I thought, well, there's probably a really good chance that as soon as this game's over, President Nixon is going to talk to either Woody Hayes, the Ohio State coach, or Bo Schembechler, the Michigan coach. So I called down, uh, I think the game was in Columbus, if I remember right, but I called down, uh, they had one payphone outside the Ohio State locker room, so I was able to get that phone number. They had one payphone outside the Michigan locker room, so I was able to get that phone number. Well, sure enough, Ohio State and Woody Hayes won the game, and it was within 15 seconds after the, the game had ended, the red light comes on the switchboard from the living room at Camp David. And Mr. Nixon says, would you get me Coach Hayes, please? Thank you, Mr. President. So I called that number that I had, I'd gotten earlier, and I think, I think Jonathan, I think a trainer answered. And I said, this is the White House calling, we have the President calling for Coach Hayes. And I think that trainer, I think he had an accident in his pants. <laughs> he was so excited. <laughs> he said, yes, sir. And I don't know if he thought I was President Nixon calling, you know. He said, well, yes, sir, he's doing a, a TV interview now, but we're going to get him to the phone shortly, sir. And I said, okay, okay, fine. So 30 seconds later, he says, sir, he sir, we're, we're getting him to the phone. So I, I'm dropping my voice, and I said, uh, okay, fine. So 45 seconds later, here comes a high-pitched, excitable voice on the line. He says, hello. And I, I dropped my voice as low as I could to do my, my finest Nixon impression I could. I said, Coach Hayes. And Woody said, yes, Mr. President. <laughs> and I said, one moment for the president. <laughs> so I got President Nixon on the other line. I said, sir, I have Coach Hayes for you now. And Typically, he would all, all the president would say would be, fine, fine. So they talked. And I have a clipping. I clipped that call. The, the Washington Post had, it, had the call about Nixon made, called his, his former Navy. You know, they both, both served in the Navy and both were, were kind of long time. He had called Woody Hayes frequently, you know. And so there was a the call that said Woody had called, so I have it in part of my clip file. Another interesting call uh, Nixon was at Camp David, and this was during the Apollo 15 astronauts. Uh, that was another one of the lunar missions, and they were down at Cape Kennedy, and it was the, the night before they were going to launch, launch for the moon. Now, this particular call, I had no idea was going to happen, but President Nixon called, and he said, uh, I answered, I said, yes, sir. He said, well, could you get me the, uh, the three astronauts down at Cape Kennedy? And he said, I want to be able, now this, I, I might say too, this was before the recording devices, the uh, secret White House tape recording devices. I wish those calls to Woody and I wish the call to the astronauts, but this is before the taping system uh, was, in, was started up and, and also used at Camp David. But anyway, uh, the president said, I want to be able to talk to each one individually. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. So I called my, the ladies at the White House admin board, and I said, yes, the president would like to speak with uh, the astronauts down at, at, uh, at Cape Kennedy. So they apparently were all in some type of a training exercise in the training quarters for the astronauts. So it, it was no more, Jonathan, I think it, two minutes at the most. I had all three astronauts on the phone, and I'm talking with each three individually and making sure, and I said, the president's going to be with you shortly. So I got back to the president, said, sir, I have the three astronauts for you now. Fine. So go ahead, go ahead, sir. So they talked. 
And then again, I, I was telling you about how we, we were trying to be proactive as much as possible. So I knew they were blasting off for their lunar mission the next morning. I knew, I knew President Nixon was going to be at Camp David for probably a couple of more days. So I thought, well, while, those, while they're orbiting the Earth, there's, there's a chance that the president may want to talk to their wives and just reassure them that, you know, that uh, the nation is thinking of your husbands up in space and everything. So I called back down to the White House admin board and I said, yeah, I said, I, just in the event that the, the president might want to talk to the wives, I said, could you put me back in touch with the astronauts? So they patched me back down to Cape Canaveral. So I talked to the three astronauts with the idea. I said, it's just in the, in the, in, if the president should want to talk to your wives, could, could I get your numbers? Well, one of them, two were married and one had a girlfriend. I don't think he was married and had a girlfriend, but he had a girlfriend. So anyway, I got those three numbers. I had a little post-it note, and I put it up on the switchboard. Uh, it turned out that Nixon went back to Washington, D.C. the next morning, uh, and I think part of that conversation, I know he said, I'll be watching the launch. It was going to be like, like 8.30 Florida time the next morning. And from what I've read, and I've read a lot about that phone call, that, that particular launch, and apparently Nixon, uh, Nixon slept through. He was still asleep at Camp David. He never saw the launch, but he said, I'll, I'll be watching the launch. But uh, the next day in the Washington Post, it was interesting because there was an article that talked about President Nixon's call, wishing the, wishing the astronauts Godspeed. And they said he was the last uh, civilian-type person to talk to the astronauts before they you know, went into quarters and then they were you know, blasted off for the moon. And I show that clipping to people and I say, no, President Nixon was not the last person because I called back down and I talked <laughs> to get the, <laughs> the numbers for the wives of the astronauts. So uh, just some of those memories are just, uh, they'll live with me forever. You know, there's just uh, things like that are just, I, I cherish those things so much. Our guest today is Michael Ebbing. Our topic was the history and mission of the White House Communications Agency and Mr. Ebbing's own experiences working as head switchboard operator at Camp David. Michael Ebbing, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jonathan. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavrodis in your bulletin.